What's happening with renewable energy penetrations rising is that the weather is becoming the fuel. And the risk that we see is that the balance of supply and demand is much more in need of short-term weather forecasts. And that's a gap in the technology. This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Downhauer. Today we're talking about forecasting energy. As we discussed way back in our first episode, meteorology used to predict how we consume energy. Now we are predicting weather to determine how much energy will be produced. It's also new that many utilities are still learning how to harness forecasts for this purpose. My guess says these teams of experts, typically part of the corporate meteorology departments, have used his company and their services to help crunch the data. By using a number of tools at their disposal, my guest is able to help predict how much solar energy will be created within an hour, day, or week. I was interested in this because, as you know, my family has a couple of notable meteorologists. I used to work in TV myself as a news producer, and during that time I got to know a lot of the local weathermen I grew up watching in my hometown of Shreveport, Louisiana. Our weather team back then probably had more expensive gear than the newsroom. I believe most TV stations have their own Doppler radar. My guess says that they rely on several tools to help paint a complete picture of the forecast. You're probably familiar with satellite images and extended weather forecasts. For forecasts that are accurate up to the minute, solar farms in particular have started placing devices called ground-based sky imagers. They essentially shoot a fisheye image of the sky and can predict when solar power will wane or intensify. All of these tools help improve reliability and predictability for solar power, which can be intermittent when demand is not. If we want more renewable energy and more distributed sources like rooftop solar, we need better tools to predict when the sun shines. My guest today is Dr. Nick Ingrer, Chief Technology Officer for Solcast, a solar forecasting firm based in Sydney, Australia. Nick wins the award for the farthest guest I've ever interviewed. I believe Sydney is 14 hours ahead of me in Charlotte. Solcast has been operating since 2016. Nick also comes from a family of meteorologists. His father serves on the corporate meteorology staff at the utility First Energy. As the name suggests, Solcast currently focuses on solar energy, although they also offer services for wind power as well. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Nick Ingerer. We're here with Nick Ingerer, Chief Technology Officer for Solcast. And Nick, what does irradiance mean and how does it vary across regions and even daily? <laughs> well, thanks very much for having me on the podcast and diving right into a question that is near and dear to my heart. Solar irradiance, often shorted to just be irradiance or sometimes solar radiation, all are encompassing how intense the sunlight is at a given location. If you're at the equator, you're generally getting the most intense, the most solar radiation in the middle of the day. As compared to being up near Alaska, you'd be getting much less incoming 
bright sunlight and solar radiation. It's a concept that's largely driven by the angle of the sun, which changes throughout the year and across the day. And anything that gets in the way of the sun and the ground will also reduce the total amount of solar radiance reaching the surface. And it becomes an important thing to talk about specifically when you start generating your energy based on the available solar irradiance at a location. Does that matter daily? What are some things that really impact irradiance? And are there things that maybe all things being equal, you're on the same latitude. Are there any things that might come into play that would make one area better for solar than others, irrespective of the weather? Does that make sense? Yeah. Absolutely. If you're putting the cloud question to the side, you already mentioned the latitude and where we're located on the planet. So we've got that covered. We understand sunlight traveling through the atmosphere will be reduced if there's higher levels of water vapor, relative humidity, but water vapor actually sits through most of the troposphere. If it's thicker, you actually can have less sunlight making it through. The same is the case for aerosols. They can be organic aerosols from a rainforest. They can be dust off of the Sahara. They can also be pollution or smoke from bushfires. Nikki, you started Soulcast about four years ago. Why would clients want to use your service? Wouldn't they already have this data? In some cases, they do. The concept of producing short-term predictions of solar radiation intensity, so-called forecasting over the next few minutes, next few days, next few hours, that's been being done for a while, as is building a historical data set of what solar radiance has looked like over time. So my partner, James Luffman, we're both meteorologists. We didn't see folks who were working on this problem approaching it from a strictly atmospheric science standpoint and really thinking about how clouds move and the thicknesses of clouds at different layers of the atmosphere. And we also saw a wonderful opportunity to take advantage of some new technology. One of those was weather satellites that have gone into operations since 2015, 2016 that give us one square kilometer pictures of the earth and resolution and update every 10 minutes. That's much better than it used to be. Here in Australia, it used to be every hour at about 25 square kilometer pixels. And there's the opportunity to operate very nimbly and take on scale without blowing up cost by using cloud-based computing on Amazon Web Services in our case. And to be honest, the rate of growth in the solar energy industry is such that there's a need for more options. Well, a great example is, is in parts of Europe. This might be Greece, Ukraine, Hungary, maybe Poland. They are a bit behind where France, Spain, Germany, the UK are in terms of building up their renewable base and then running that in their local electricity markets and utility. In these other countries I just mentioned, been picking up the pace in installations of solar and also wind. They're crossing the threshold where you need to start having solar forecasting or wind energy forecasting technology so that you get supply and demand balance correct on a given day. How do you forecast how much sun a region is going to get? You're taking into account a lot of other factors other than maybe just cloud cover, right? Yeah, it's really actually very intricate because what many people readily accept is that it's difficult to forecast the weather. And while we're getting better and better that over time, that's really fundamentally driven by the fact that the weather changes a lot. Some of it is stochastic or random, and it's challenging in particular with clouds because clouds, they're moving, they're shifting, they're at different levels of the atmosphere. They're actually moving in different directions in the atmosphere. And also the places that the clouds end up sitting in the lower part of the atmosphere called the troposphere, off 
often also drives how thick they are to sunlight. Higher level clouds will be thinner, wispier, more sunlight comes through. Low level clouds, maybe a rainstorm gets really dark, very little sunlight gets through. So it's essentially a meteorology problem. You can approach that weather models that we use to see graphics on TV. That is also a resource for solar energy forecasting. They don't do a tremendously good job at that, but it's getting better over time. Then you pick up satellite-based forecasting, which is our bread and butter to go beyond four to six hours ahead. But that allows us to see where clouds are, predict where they're going, track a forecast, see how the prediction stacked up and change it with a bit of machine learning on the fly and some computer vision. That generally services the whole bracket of around 10 minutes ahead to four hours, six hours ahead. And if you want to get real short term, you have to start blending in some other technologies. One example is we put these ground-based sky imagers on a solar farm and it washes the cloud cover. And then we could predict if the cloud is going to come over the solar farm and how much that will ramp it down or up over the next few minutes. That's really good. Now, Nick, my sister is a meteorologist. Her husband, my brother-in-law, is a meteorologist. So be careful on this answer here. But how would this be different from the information meteorologists can provide? And remember, you know, utilities have corporate meteorology departments. Their job is to do this. So tell us where you come in. (laughs) Yeah, I love that because I work with a number of these meteorology teams. And I always really like learning about what they're doing because they're taking meteorology at a utility and creating forecasts that are mostly focused on risk management. For example, my father works at First Energy. They've had a team of meteorologists there for a long time. They're quite good at knowing what the impact of snow is going to be or whether or not there's going to be freezing rain or a storm might bring down some lines. But that's actually the core work that those teams do. There are some small exceptions to that, one being the meteorology team at Duke Energy. They actually own some of that solar forecasting effort. They use some weather model data and they make forecasts of their solar farm fleet through their meteorology team. But there's a gap there in that this specific problem about tracking cloud cover and forecasting cloud cover and doing that well and modeling the solar ray radiance that comes through it and just even spinning up the systems that need to deal with a terabyte or two of data coming down from a single satellite over the U.S. every month is challenging. It's a very nice problem to have somebody come along and solve and then offer that as an input to a skilled team of meteorologists as we do with Duke Energy. They have have a good ability to take that and operate with it. Some other utilities need to be able to have a standalone solution delivered to them. And increasingly, we see our engineers, particularly in Australia, our Australia energy market operator, who have been looking at the weather so much, even though they're engineers by background, they're really starting to understand the meteorology and just need some actionable information to interpret so we can deliver that. These meteorologists have many other tasks. They generally aren't focused on such a niche problem, which is very difficult to solve. So that's how you provide value with that. Yeah. And you mentioned satellites. I assume you don't have your own special satellite. So how are you crunching data to provide this service? I would love to have my own satellite. I think that could be a future for weather companies in the 2030s. We're certainly getting close there. We're not there yet. The interesting thing about satellite data is it's just pictures. There's wavelengths that we take images at. It could be very much like a camera, RGB, or infrared imagery. And we get those pictures coming in as frequently as every five to 10 minutes. That's kind of the status quo now, one kilometer resolution. We take, broadly speaking, 
the visible channels and the infrared channels of the satellite imagery, we have to be continually running a algorithm that is doing its best guess at what the background of the image is. So we're just getting a picture, but you can imagine if you had things moving across a picture and you watched the background of that picture enough that wasn't moving, you could get an idea of what it should look like and you could fill that in and then it would help you figure out when objects are moving in front of that background. That's what we do with the satellite imagery. We establish a background. This is colloquially called albedo, which means percent reflectivity, and it allows you to differentiate between the surface of the Earth, even white snow on mountains or fresh fallen snow, and cloud cover, which often looks very similar, over top of that. We have to do that decomposition of the image. And then after you've done that, we have to assign those cloud layers in the troposphere and estimate their properties. That infrared imagery is very useful because we can see if clouds are colder. If clouds are colder, they're generally higher in the troposphere. And then you got to model how much solar radiation makes it through it. This is one of the things I spent my PhD working on. You actually have to turn those cloud pictures into estimates of how thick the cloud are. And then you have to estimate how much solar radiation, like we talked about earlier, is making it through those clouds. And then, of course, you need to predict where clouds are going to go in the near-term future and do the same thing again. And that becomes the general pipeline that data has to flow across to be useful. And there's one more step there. If you want more than solar radiance, we also do energy forecasting for rooftop solars, for utility scale solar, and that becomes another step that might sit in the pipeline if a user needs that. One of the things I'm thinking about here is, do you help solar farm developers site their farms? I think we've been talking a lot about how do you predict solar for the farms that are there, but I would think this would really help people very strategically site farms in places that might not have made sense but it's like, look, historically, you look at these satellite images, it seems like it might help people find a real gusher. <laughs> yeah, that's important step. You're right. You want a gusher. You want to have a productive site. You're making money on how many units of energy you can sell, regardless of your contract. The difference between meteorology, which is your weather forecasting, and climatology, which is the long-term expected behavior of a specific place in the world. So you get a long-term history, decade or more of solar radiance behavior, and then you can actually create what we call a typical meteorological year, which looks at what is the most likely scenario for you to get in terms of solar radiance and some basic weather parameters. And then you can make a couple scenarios of that. So you might have a more conservative one, a more aggressive one, and then a developer can take that and they can build revenue models and respectively check each other's revenue models before maybe that solar farm is purchased or it gets investors on board. This long-term history is built with satellite imagery, but also some historical weather data and can be, in some cases, tuned or include measurements from the ground as a part of the data set. So that allows you to get that picture to figure out where you're really going to be cranking out those energy units, your gusher, so to speak. Yeah. Nick, I once did an episode on concentrated solar power, the mirrors for those listening at oh, home. Yeah. The concentration of solar energy that's needed for that kind of application is pretty limited on Earth. There's not very many places where it's ideal. High elevation, arid deserts, right? It also required years of on-the-ground monitoring before a site could be considered ideal. Can you help with that legwork? Yeah, and the effort in that case community is to shift away from those long build timeframes, you know, 10 years of historical data. They're really interested in how can we appropriately estimate the risk of the plant's performance and assure investors that we will get the performance that we want at this location because it's so expensive. So it hasn't achieved the cost scale that solar PV has. The concentrating ones generally are dependent on direct sunlight. Most of the sun's intensity is coming to you from that disk. That's why 
you can't look at the sun with your eyes. We have to know if there's going to be clouds moving in between that generation facility and the sun, because then it won't have the oomph it needs to achieve the generation that it requires. And so we spend a lot of time on that and we make that data all available. What that allows users to do is to get some high fidelity solar radiance data in a time series. Now we're going down to five minutes. For some clients, we do one minute resolution data specifically for these types of plants. It's becoming more common that you might only need maybe two years of data or three years of monitoring data to get a project up and going for concentrated solar power. You still want something on the ground monitoring that. There's no way to basically pull up historical satellite images of cloud cover or go back retroactively and say, hey, let's see what the historics were. You don't think we're there yet, do you? I think that we are. The question is, is the investment community who are looking to <laughs> put in a chunk of the several hundred to billions of dollars needed for a significantly sized concentrating solar facility willing to accept that data. You have to imagine the due diligence on this for investment is very rigorous. It's not necessarily that the data is not suitable for that or that we can't provide that. It's really a risk management strategy that is stopping people from using that directly and only that. That could change in the future, but I don't see that changing until the risk profile shifts in the investment landscape. And that won't happen until the costs come down. Getting back to PVs, it feels like developers put up solar farms everywhere. I've had a few guests on where we just talked about construction of solar farms. And I've looked at all their little dots on the map and they're way up north, right? It rains a lot. I've seen pictures where they have trucks scrape heavy snow off. Is there some kind of equation that you can point to where there's a break-even point for the cost of the facility and the amount of sunlight that you can get at a site? Because look, there's just some places where it's rainy, snowy. What's the math there? It's a great question. I think that one of the great places to start is to think about Germany. Because of large-scale government schemes and collaboration between the various regional governments and the utilities and everybody else there, they grew the solar very quickly. They have the equivalent solar resource as New York State, which is exactly one of the places that gets the type of weather you're talking about. If you were to establish a totally free market for where these sites were and they were merchant only and they're participating in the energy market and it's based on the volume of energy, they would be in the United States very much in favor of moving to the Southwest or to the Southern US, maybe Gulf states. It's a little funny anecdote, but we actually have a model that can predict how fast snow will slide down solar panels and off them <laughs> because this is yeah. such an important thing to point out. Whether or not there's a break-even point is challenging to assess because we could do that with a strictly math-based equation based on solar radiance and a known cost of solar and a known cost of energy. But things don't work that way because there's so many regional or state incentives and people aren't necessarily installing solar in the most optimal places because of that. But then again, energy is not used as much in the most optimal places. You talked about working with residential customers. What services are you offering them? I would think that, hey, if I'm going to put rooftop solar on my house, if I don't get any solar that day, that's just the weather. We really like this audience, right? Because there's so many homeowners who have rooftop solar. Of course, there's also a decent number of folks who are trying to sell products to those guys. In my view, we think there's a lot more value for everyone if we're giving those folks tools to support them and do things as simple as check the performance of their solar system over the last week. If you go to our website, solcast.com, there's free tools in the menu bar. We have a solar PV performance checker, and you can see the last seven weeks how many kilowatt hours you should have generated from your solar. And then if you have an app 
you might be monitoring on, or you can even go out and read the inverter if you have to old school, you could do a basic check on that to just make sure your solar system's doing what it should be doing. And you can see variations as fine as 5% degradation over a year. A lot of people online have evaluated that themselves and been very excited about it. And the other thing is that satellite-based forecasting and weather model-based forecasting, we combine all that seamlessly in a zero to seven day forecast. But for residential folks who have rooftop solar, we give them free access to generating their own rooftop solar site in our system. So you can add the details of your rooftop solar system and you can get those same satellite and weather model based forecasts for your rooftop solar system. And that hasn't got to the mainstream where there's a lot of actionable information in it, but there's a wonderful realm of homeowners who are also a little bit DIY and will rig this up into a display on their computer. I've seen somebody hack a Kindle so it displays the weather and the solar on it from our data. There's a lot of cool things that are showing up by making that data freely available to homeowners with solar. You're in Australia. Tell us about the market in the Eastern Hemisphere where you are. And my original question was, do you have any plans to come back to the United States? But look, I feel like the solar market in the United States is getting pretty mature. And being in Australia, I'd have to think it's kind of like fracking, right? We're ahead now. And in a lot of places, it hasn't even come online, but it could. But when it comes to PV solar and really maximizing that in Australia and Indonesia and all those places, Places. It seems like it's got so much potential that hasn't yet been realized. And I would have to think being over there with the tool that you've got, there's a lot of potential there. You're certainly right. And it's an exponential growth curve. If you look at it globally, and particularly if you look in locally at places that have incentives or have kind of passed over into maturity, that solar just keeps growing and growing. One of the very interesting things that comes out of that is the technology developments that are needed to engage the next tier of challenges that that introduces. In parts of Australia, we're starting to see those technical challenges emerge and they're new and unexpected ones because we're so far ahead of the curve on this. One of our states is called South Australia and we have in that state 1.3 gigawatts of rooftop solar. Altogether, that's the biggest generator in the state. As you get to these really high penetrations, it's not just about a solar forecast anymore. It is about a solar forecast for utility scale solar coming into their generation predictions. And then it's a rooftop solar forecast that's rapidly updating. And then that's fed to a demand forecasting engine. The demand gets misshapen. They call it the duck curve in the United States. We call it the emu curve here in Australia. And I heard it was called the dead armadillo curve in Texas. We know those guys like to be different. We love Texas. And that shape is because the solar is generating and soaking up demand in the middle of the day if it's sunny. Then we also have wind energy generation, which is being changed by weather systems that are coming through. Now you've changed the wind generation completely while you've ramped the solar down with clouds. And also, by the way, sometimes there's severe thunderstorms. So what's happening with renewable energy penetrations rising is that the weather is becoming the fuel. And increasingly, the risk that we see for weather events is that the balance of supply and demand and overall system security is more complex and much more in need of short-term weather forecasts, what we call the now casting horizon. And that's a gap in the technology. No one's really doing that well for cloud cover, for wind energy, for solar energy forecasting. And that's exactly where we find ourselves at this moment. We're working on a big project there in South Australia with several partners to figure out how to build Build that forecasting system. I didn't even think about this. The company is Solcast, but how much wind forecasting are you doing? Yeah, solar forecasting is definitely where the name came from. As you go into that world where you're engaging with higher profile clients, 
like a grid operator for an entire country. What you'll find is that they would prefer to contract with an entity that can do both wind and solar forecasting. We have developed a wind energy forecasting product that is very good. We don't go through all the effort of making it go through our API and making it available to everyone or trying to sell that online. We instead use that to spin up when a client specifically needs that along with solar forecasting. So are you planning on forming a new co <laughs> to incorporate wind in your name? Yeah, maybe. What would that be? Like, I have to think of a cool word for wind and call it that cast. I don't know. Blowcast yeah. or something sounds very, very risque. Blowcast. So I got to think of better ones. <laughs> maybe just have a parent company or something in there. We're very interested in that. We'll talk more in the future, maybe, Jay. You bet. I'm going to finish with a lightning round of your thoughts on different energy technologies. Natural gas. Exceptionally valuable, important for the economy, needs to get the methane thing under control. Brute oil. Not going away anytime soon. Very important. I'm glad it's currently cheap. It'll be running our cars for decades. Nuclear. Oh, I wish we had a more reasonable discussion around this very, very important technology. Small modular reactors, new generation technology are completely undervalued and underutilized. Coal. I see a lot of coal in Australia. We do. The economy has a significant portion of its total exports based on that per GDP. Modernize or die. Wind. A tremendous resource in the right locations. And then you guys, solar? It is already speckling the entire world. That trend will continue and it will continue exponentially. So we better be ready. Biofuels. I'm split. They have such great potential in aircraft and boats large vehicles, that's probably where we should limit their application. I don't think consumer vehicles and biofuels makes any sense. Hydroelectric. A fantastic technology, so long as it doesn't devastate entire ecosystems irreparably, and a really valuable resource for dispatchable energy. We can get it on demand so long as we have the water uphill. Geothermal. Ahead of its time, but the interior of our planet is another nearly limitless energy resource, just like the sun. Energy storage. Electric vehicles are entering a golden age. That will be the main place that that sits. Home battery systems are growing very quickly in some places. I think that remains to be seen. Electric vehicles. You can look at the success of Tesla and the modernization efforts in other car companies in response to that. It's here. It's growing. It's going to be cool. Energy efficiency. Probably the most underrated item on this list in terms of its potential to really, really save us some money. It's just politically hard to force it to happen. It's also not as much fun, right? You're not really building exactly. anything. Exactly. It's kind of what you don't see, right? And then finally, exactly. fusion power. You know, it's joked as one of those things is always 10 years away. We will crack it this century, whether that's next decade or in three decades, I don't know. But it will be here before 2100. All right, Nick Ingrer, Soulcast. Thank you so much for your time. Hey, my pleasure. Anybody who wants that free stuff, it's at Soulcast, S O L C A S T dot com. That was Nick Ingrer, Chief Technology Officer for Soulcast, solar and wind energy forecasting company. Nick mentioned that he has provided both wind and solar services for utilities. They currently provide comprehensive services for EVN, the grid operator, in Vietnam. I want to thank Nick for his time, and you can find plenty of pictures on energy-cast.com, as well as on Instagram and Parler at Host Energy, and Twitter at Host Energy Cast. All guests are sent the raw and completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to leave us a positive review on iTunes. That gets the word out. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 91. Be sure to join us next week when we discuss how carbon capture research is changing at the largest research facility on Earth. Until then, I'm Jay Dauenhauer. We'll see you next time.